This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Brian Keel, Executive Director of Farmers for Free Trade. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Brian Keel of Farmers for Free Trade next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net, providing individualized protection on more than 490 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. From the surface, it would be argued that U.S. agriculture exports are doing well. Overall sales last year up 11% at $196 billion. But the volume of certain bulk commodities was down from previous years. Brian Keel, Executive Director of Farmers for Free Trade, says Congress and the Biden administration need to step up the pace on expanding access to global markets. Other countries are cutting deals. Other countries are entering into preferential trading relationships where they're lowering tariffs and they're streamlining trade. And sure, I mean, the U.S. has all sorts of advantages. We've got good farmland. We've got strong workers. We've got rule of law. We've got technology. We've got transportation. And that'll carry us for a while. But eventually, you know, economics catches up with you. If, if everybody else is able to sell wheat, get, get a, a larger profit than we can because we're being dragged down by tariffs, eventually we lose those markets. So things may look good in the short run, but you look five, ten years out, and, and it's a different story. The other thing I'd point out is USDA is forecasting that the U.S. will actually run a trade deficit in agriculture for the first time in recent memory. So while the value, while the numbers have gone up, you know, some of that's embedded in inflation, some of that's embedded in the strength of the dollar. Long term, uh, it's not that rosy of a picture, and and we either need to start opening new markets or we're going to fall behind. Uh, Overall volume of ag trade last year was actually down 6%. Rice was down 27%, corn volume down 16%, wheat down 13%. Now, the question is, is that a single-year fall, or is this a trend of volumes getting shorter? I think it is definitely a trend that we're very concerned about. We're in kind of a strange position right now where you've got prices, commodity prices are higher because of the war in Ukraine. I mean, that's been one big disruption, obviously, to corn and wheat and, uh, you know, ripple effects through fertilizer and other things. So things feel good because our prices have been relatively high. But you're absolutely right. Volumes have been down. And again, long term, it's the picture isn't going to get better. We're not doing anything as a country that should make us feel like, well, next year the numbers will turn around or two years from now they'll turn around. Volumes, you know, I think are going down for a reason. And part of it's because we're being outcompeted. So how long has it been since we have signed a new free trade deal. Now, I know that there was some work done with China, and I know that there's been some work done with Japan, but how long since we've 
signed a new deal with someone that expanded market access? The answer is it's been over a decade. I mean, Columbia Free Trade Agreement, I think, was the last free trade agreement we entered into. And if you look at the number of free trade agreements the U.S. has entered into, it's it's paltry in terms of the number of countries where we have free trade agreements. Now, the good news is we got Mexico and Canada, you know, because of the NAFTA and then because of uh, President Trump renegotiating and creating the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. That's a big trading block, and those neighbors to our north and south are critically important for exports. But beyond that, you know, you look at, like, United Arab Emirates, Israel, you know, pretty small countries, and not to diminish the product we sell to them, that's fantastic. But, you know, when you think about Vietnam, when you think about Indonesia, when you think about India, when you, I mean, go down the list of countries where it would help to have a trade agreement and how much we could export, and you realize just what a shortfall we have. So the Biden administration has been working on this Indo-Pacific economic framework. What's good about that, and what's lacking about that? Well, there's a number of things that are good about it, and we would and we would give them an attaboy for working on it. I mean, number one, you know, economic engagement with allies is always good, especially in the context of the Southeast uh, of the Asia rim, where where you're trying to create a little counterweight to China. Those are good things, and 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 you know, they're focusing on things like corruption, and they're focusing on things like currency manipulation. Those are all important conversations to be having. In the trade context specifically, IPEF could help around the edges. They're talking about non-tariff barriers to trade and science-based standards. Those are important things as well and, and certainly can help us move product into countries. But what they're not talking about is market access. What they're not talking about is reducing tariffs. And so, again, when you look at, like, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which the U.S. negotiated with 11 other countries and then we pulled out of on President Trump's first day in office, those countries went ahead and they've, they've created the Trans-Pacific Partnership just without us. So Australia, Canada, Mexico, who are all in that CPTPP, they have preferential access to markets that we don't right now. And that's and that's a crying shame. I mean, we need to turn this around, and we need to focus on tariffs and market access. So IPEF is good. We appreciate the administration doing it, but we need to do more. So would you recommend to the administration to try to rejoin the CPTPP? We would, or create something new. I mean, build build into IPEF market access, um, or cherry pick you know the, the the target countries out of the CPTPP, such as um, such as Japan and Vietnam, and do full trade agreements with them. Um, you know, maybe we don't have to be in a coalition with twelve. I think we should, but. There's a lot of ways to skin it, but the problem is right now, because politics around trade got so screwed up, I mean, President Trump was fairly protectionist. He didn't like uh, trading with other countries. It's easy to kind of blow up trade agreements and, and, and criticize them. So, you know, the right wing in the United States shifted and became fairly protectionist, and the left wing, God knows, has always been fairly protectionist. They, you know, they worry about labor rights, they worry about environmental standards, all of which are legitimate issues. But as a result, you know, the two wings in American politics have become fairly skeptical of trade, and that makes it hard for anybody, whether it's the Trump administration or the Biden administration or whoever comes next, the politics are not good, and I think as farmers in U.S. ag, we need to be a very strong voice saying, 
This is critical for our industry. I mean, 20% of farm revenue comes from exports. If we're not growing that, uh, we're going to be falling behind. Uh, to set a benchmark here, who does Farmers for Free Trade represent? And, and what was your message when you visited with Congress recently? And what's your message specifically for the, the Biden administration? So Farmers for Free Trade is an umbrella organization that represents U.S. agriculture broadly. So it's wheat growers, corn growers, dairy, pork. It's John Deere. It's CoBank. It's the Almond Alliance of California. So it's, it's very broad and represents U.S. agriculture, U.S. food and agriculture broadly. We hosted a fly-in to Washington, D.C., where we brought farmers from around the U.S. from different commodities to come and talk to their elected officials and to say, hey, trade matters. We also met with, uh, with a number of Biden administration officials, and our message in both meetings was the same. If we're not moving forward, we're falling behind. And in, in the context of trade, other countries are cutting deals. China just cut a, did a free trade agreement with Ecuador. They've, China created the, the RCEP, which is a third of the world's economy coordinating trade. The U.S. Has, is standing on the sidelines. We're, we're not in the game right now. And either we get in the game or long-term, it's really going to hurt U.S. food and agriculture. So it's the administration that negotiates trade. How can Congress help? Well, it, the, the Constitution gives Congress the authority over trade. And, and what Congress then does is delegate to the administration to go out and negotiate the deals. So part of our message to Congress was tell the administration what you want to see. You know, it's this chicken and egg where the administration is saying, well, we're not going to do anything, you know, presumably because they're nervous about how Congress is going to react. Well, Congress should step up and say, look, we're concerned about China and China's economic dominance. And the antidote to that is for us to build trading relationships, preferential trading relationships with others surrounding China. And that's and that's what the Trans-Pacific Partnership would have done. But beyond TPP, you know, think of every country in the Indo-Pacific region, we should be bringing them into our orbit. We should be executing trade agreements. We should be trying to integrate economies because ultimately that isolates China and it makes it harder for China to become the dominant economic power. So who are your champions now and who do you need to get on board? Well, the good news is we've got great champions in Congress, uh, you know, on both sides of the aisle. I mean, Congressman Costa of California, Democrat, has been a longtime champion of trade. And on the, on the Republican side, I mean, there are dozens, you know, Adrian Smith, fantastic congressman on Ways and Means, who's, who's really been a champion. So, I think part of what we need to do is rely on those those champions that we have who, who understand the importance of trade and who have helped with passage of USMCA. Part of our challenge, though, is the number of new members of Congress who have never worked on trade issues. You know, it's, it's hard to believe that U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement was just 2019. So we've had two elections since then, 20 and 22. But in those two elections, there are huge numbers of, of members of Congress who have come into office who have never worked on trade. So we've got a we've got a learning curve and a lot of education we need to do, uh, explaining to, to uh, these members why trade is so critical for farmers and ranchers. Well, the minds of voters becomes all more important as we approach 2024. Is trade a priority for enough voters in the country to 
to push those in office toward action? We're certainly hoping that uh, that working with farmers, ranchers, and, and people in the food and ag industry, we can we can create that pressure. I think that's part of what our job is, and part of what we all need to do as an industry. Um, we need to make it unacceptable for a Republican and unacceptable for a Democrat to say they're anti-trade or they don't want to see us engaging with the world. Um, look. How many mouths exist in the United States versus the rest of the world? I mean, put it simply, 95% of the world population is outside the U.S. So if you're in a business of feeding people or clothing people or creating fuel for people, all of which ag does, you're foolish if you're like, well, we're just going to do that here in the U.S. Um, that, that's that's just missing missing the big picture. So we need, we need to be in the game. We need to be selling our products globally, and uh, and we need to do what we do best, which is grow healthy, safe food, and literally feed the world. Well, if you had a new trade agreement signed on a silver platter right now, you'd have a hard time moving it through Congress because you don't have TPA. Uh, what was the response from the administration if they're even willing to bring this up before the Congress? So, great point. So, TPA, Trade Promotion Authority, is the law that says if the administration negotiates a trade deal, Congress won't amend it. So, it, it, it allows the administration, whether, again, the Trump administration or Biden administration, it doesn't matter. It allows whoever's president to go out and negotiate a deal, and the trading partner that they negotiate with know that that's the deal. It's not like a used car sales where, you know, you're, you're going to get the manager from the back office who's going to come in and add up the price. So... TPA is critically important. The Biden administration has not asked for TPA to be renewed. They haven't. They haven't made that a legislative priority. We've asked them to do so. But by the same token, we've said to Congress, "Look, the Constitution gives you authority over trade. You should put forward a TPA bill, even if." The president's not asking for it, both because it will give the Biden administration direction as to what Congress wants to see, and because two years from now we may have a new administration. I mean, 2024 was just over the horizon, and whether Biden's reelected or whether someone else steps in, having Congress say, this is what we want, is really important. We need to lay the groundwork and create expectations that we need to be in the game of trade. So how is the game different now with Doug McCaleb at USTR and Alexis Taylor on board at USDA? Oh, I think it's. I think those are critical, critical appointments. So, uh, so Doug McCaleb is the the U.S. Ag negotiator at USTR. Uh, Alexis Taylor, who we did meet with uh, uh, during our fly-in, is the undersecretary uh, for international and foreign ag. And those are critical positions. I mean, we've really been hamstrung for the last two years. Um, you know, Secretary Vilsack, God bless him, is an ardent champion of trade. He's been very good on our behalf. But, you know, he's he's fighting with one hand tied behind his back when he doesn't have his, have, have the support from people like McCallop and, uh, and, uh, and Taylor. So... I think it's critically important that they they've been confirmed. They're in their offices. They're doing their work, and that's part of why we hosted this fly-in. We said, "Look, it's a new Congress. There's new members of Congress who need to hear about trade, but it's also a new opportunity." We finally got the team on the field with uh, with McCallop and, and Taylor uh, in office. Let's work with them and really try to start developing a drumbeat for uh, for for expanding trade. So it's one thing to get an agreement signed, and it's quite another to see those members of an agreement live up to their promises. 
there's pushback now from Mexico on transgenic corn, and we still have the ongoing issue with dairy products and Canada under USMCA. So with regard to the pushback, how important now to come to a conclusion or a resolution where everybody's living up to their promises? Oh, it's critically important. I mean, trade trade agreement enforcement is 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 critical. Um, but I think, and and I think the administration is to be commended for doing USA USMCA enforcement in the dairy context and for threatening it in the Mexico context with respect to GMO. Um, but I think a really important point to understand is the only reason we have that leverage, the only reason we can push back effectively is because we have a trade agreement, because we have a dispute resolution mechanism. You know, if if Vietnam tomorrow says, we're not going to take pork that has this standard, or we're not going to take corn that's GMO, or pick your topic, there's nothing we really can say about it. I mean, there might be some World Trade Organization rules we could point to, but as a general rule, you don't have a lot of leverage if you don't have a trade agreement. It's the trade agreement that sets up the rules-based system that allows you to say, wait a minute, you agreed to accept our products unless there was a scientific reason not to do so. You can't just make it up. You can't just say, suddenly, I don't like GMOs. Show us what, why you're doing this. And that, that's exactly the discussion that's happening with uh, President Obrador in Mexico right now. It would appear that the WTO is neutered now by not having a dispute settlement body, and then fingers point at the U.S. about that. Is the WTO the answer, or is this more of a multilateral or bilateral agenda that we should establish to see success? Or does it matter to farmers for free trade? Oh, I think it matters very much, and I think it's it's a both-and. It's kind of a belts and suspenders type of approach. I think you want the WTO in place. I mean, remember, what is the World Trade Organization? Where did it come from? It came out of post-World War II, where the whole world had turned on itself, and everything had been destroyed, and we'd had this massive war, and, and millions of people killed. And the United States said, hey, to, to minimize the risk of that happening again, let's build economic integration. Let's get people working together. Let's get countries working together. So the U.S. created the World Trade Organization. I mean, we didn't do it alone. England and other countries were involved. But but we stood up this idea of a rules-based economic order so that, that rather than beating each other with clubs, we'd negotiate and we'd, we'd, we'd encourage free markets. Um, so it's it's silly that now that we've created that rules-based system that has tremendously benefited the United States, there are some in the U.S. who don't like the WTO. It's like, well, do you want to go back to a situation where there aren't rules and where you know we can't depend on our ag exports? That would be silly. So the WTO is critically important. The dispute resolution uh, body, the appellate body, is broken. The U.S. hasn't been making appointments to that body or allowing appointments because we believe that uh, the the process has been broken and we want to see some reforms. And I, I think that's fair. I think reforming WTO is something that should definitely be on the table. But it shouldn't be put off indefinitely. It's something we should get done. We want the WTO to be functioning. And then layer on top of the WTO free trade agreements that we enter either bilaterally or multilaterally uh, to really give the U.S. extra extra strength economically uh, worldwide. Brian, let's shift uh, to, to the future if we can. Will trade be as big a priority 
if we see an increase in domestic demand for soybeans, for oil, for next-generation biodiesel? How does the renewable fuel element in the U.S. and demand in the globe change the game? That is a fantastic question, Jeff, and I think I think you're right. I mean, biodiesel, I think uh, I think ethanol, and you look at the incentives that Congress has put in place through the Inflation Reduction Act, the Clean Fuel Production Credit, that really has the potential to supercharge bio-based fuels, um, and then also you know uh, plant-based products. I mean, that's the other thing that's that's just over the horizon and that's coming online is the potential for uh, ag products to be feedstuffs for all sorts of manufacturing and all sorts of uh, of product creation, um, so I think that's a, it's a very real question. Um, here's here's what I see. Number one, we need to reflect on again the blessings that are in the United States. I mean, we have lots of farmland. We have great transportation systems, including with uh, our inland waterways. Um, we have rule of law and stability. People know they can count on our our signature on a contract. We got farmers who will work day and night to produce food and fiber and fuel. Um, okay, can we produce more is the question. And I would argue the answer is, is absolutely we can. That when you look at technology, and this is, this is part of the GMO discussion, but it's not just about GMOs. It's about uh, you know efficiency in ag. It's about using drones. It's about water efficiency. It's about all the innovations that we as Americans do best. We can increase ag production, and we already have. I mean, the bushels that are produced on an acre today are dramatically more than they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So I'm not as worried about can we produce the food, and I think, or fiber or fuel. I think that if if there's a market for it domestically, we can fill that market. We're still going to need to sell overseas, and uh, and we're not going to want to ever turn away from overseas opportunities. What is the risk? If Congress and if this administration or future administrations don't get in the game with regard to free trade? There's a number of things. Number one, we lose our status as the global food producer. I mean, right now, we're an, we're an economic powerhouse in terms of producing food and ag and exporting it. And we're going to lose that standing if if we're not in the game. Uh, number two, with that loss comes the loss of sort of the soft power. You know, it's it's partially economic. We like to sell food and ag products, but that that brings with it soft power, influence. People want to buy our food and ag products. People are dependent on our food and ag products, and that gives the U.S. standing and 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 clout versus other countries like China or Russia. So so it's we lose world credibility on that level as well. And then one point that I think people don't often focus on is the reason U.S. ag has been relatively healthy over the years is because of our exports. You know, 20% of farm revenue comes from exports. If you take that away, if you start to lose that export, it means our domestic ag production is not as healthy. So when you think about meeting our own food and fiber needs, Part of the reason we're able to do that so consistently is because we have a robust ag economy. And if and if that economy takes a, a sucker punch and suddenly suddenly you're not getting export dollars and suddenly you can't repay those loans, it cascades. It's not just about losing overseas markets. It's about hurting domestic markets as well. Well, Brian Keel, we want to thank you very much uh, in this season of politics and in this uh, environment of trade. 
for taking time to spend with us on this edition of Open Mic. Brian, it is Open Mic, and today you get the last word. Well, I would say, number one, again, let's count our blessings. Uh, look at all, all that we have as Americans and be, be thankful and mindful of that. You know, you look around the world at, for example, the earthquake in Syria and Turkey. Um, you know, we are really blessed as Americans uh, with the quality of life we have and the economy we have. We need to pull together as Americans, and one of the places where we can pull together is in trade and international engagement. That's good for our rural communities. It's good for our farmers. And it's not a Republican issue. It's not a Democratic issue. It's a place we can work together and get things done. Our thanks to Brian Keel, Executive Director of Farmers for Free Trade, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.